Three, Three two, two, one, go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor. And I'm Chris. And today we're going to be talking to you more about the Democratic National Convention. So, Chris, do you want to start us off? All right, sure. So we're going to start off today by talking about, I mean, in general, we're going to talk about several of the sort of more obscure Democratic Convention rules, but in particular, we're going to start off with talking about the affirmative action plan for the Democratic National Convention and some of the state's uh, plans as well. So quick background for those of you who might be, not be familiar with the, the lingo here, an affirmative action plan just generally is a plan by which, um, at least most commonly, it's a plan by which uh, historical sort of inequities are addressed through affirmative action, which is to say intentional action to uh, sort of address the problem. So in the context that it's used here, it's going to mean uh, historically marginalized groups. Uh, in particular, the party specifies the following uh, groups that the affirmative action plan is designed to sort of um, give, I guess, favorable treatment to or affirmative action to. Um, and in this case, it's African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders, women um, also in the context of most of the states that we're going to look at. It also includes youths and uh, caregivers and those with disabilities. So what exactly, do, what exactly is the goal of these sort of affirmative action plans? Because it could mean a lot of things. You know, preferential treatment is a word I used a moment ago, but what does that actually, is that really the right way to characterize it? And even if it is, what does that look like in practice? So the exact goal is is somewhat hard to define because, as I just mentioned, this is kind of a amorphous sort of space to understand. It's something that's trying to address the sort of historical legacy of structural racism and things like that. So, as you can imagine, it's an amorphous and pretty complicated con, uh, con sort of set. But what it looks like is that, in general, the goal is to try to ensure that the representation of the Democratic Party and the electorates in which it operates is proportionate to the actual ratios of each of these groups within those electorates. So in practice, what it kind of means is, let's say in a particular state, the Democratic Party um, members in that state, about 13% of them are African American. The goal of these affirmative action programs is to ensure that at least 13% of the uh, sort of Democratic Party's delegates are going to be composed of African Americans. Um, the idea behind this is not just to have uh, sort of representation for sort of the, the sake of itself, but because we're trying to get an accurate cross-section of what every member, all the stakeholders in the party actually think about a particular thing. And so if we have, what has historically been the case is that it's been generally white men have controlled the party and have made up all the delegates. And although it's white men, we also usually on the older side of the spectrum. So these plans are really designed to make sure that the actual party's representatives represent the members of the party and not just a tiny sort of elite selection of it. But here's an important key part of this. So you might think, all right, well, Chris said we want to have a proportionate member or proportionate membership. So how are we going to do that? Now, the obvious way to do that, some might think, is let's have a mandatory quota system. Let's say, all right, well, if African-Americans, again, say make up 13 percent of the population of this particular state or this particular state's Democratic Party, then we're going to mandate 
that 13% of any delegates selected for the National Convention have to be African American. Now, that is not allowed. There are some general reasons for that. Namely, I think there's some Supreme Court case law that says those sorts of mandatory quota systems are unconstitutional, but there's also just sort of the idea that that's probably a wrong-minded way of going about trying to do affirmative action. So, how do we actually do, how do we actually sort of bring this about? Uh, well, that's a little bit trickier. So that's actually something that the Democratic National Committee punts to the state levels. They mandate that the states all create affirmative action plans and submit them to the national party, but they don't actually tell them how they have to do them within, except for sort of general guidelines. Just to add to that, uh, states are allowed to adopt their own plans. However, the Rules Committee, which we'll talk about later, has the ability to say that this plan doesn't follow the rules the DNC has outlined for an affirmative action plan, which is, I guess, kind of the goal of making sure there's at least some basic guidelines, basic foundational blocks for these affirmative action plans. Right. So exactly as Victor's saying, so, again, they ha the DNC says, or has passed measures to say, every state party has to select an affirmative action plan and submit it to the Democratic National Convention for its approval. Now, these plans can be challenged, and these plans, again, are to are how we're going to select the delegates from each state who go to the National Convention. Um, so, there's another aspect of this sort of affirmative action plan that doesn't have to do with just sort of ethnic minorities or anything like that. There's a sort of a gender parity sort of, uh, or an equal division rule for genders as well, because we're trying not to just balance it. It'd be one thing, you know, it'd be certainly a positive if we could see, at least from the part, perspective of the Democratic Party, if we could see a wider sort of selection of ethnic and racial makeup within the delegates, because then we'd get more voices at the party sort of creating policy and creating platform ideas. But it would be inideal if that was just, you know, a whole bunch of men of different backgrounds, because then we're still missing sort of 50% of the population. So one of the other aspects of the affirmative action plan is the idea that where possible, we'd like to try to get to a place, and when I say we here, I mean the Democratic National Convention and the general party would like to get to a place where gender parity for its delegates. But again, this isn't something where they're trying to necessarily, this one comes a little bit closer, to, at least in their, their own rules, it comes a little bit closer to a quota system where they say, if possible, it very much seems like they should try to get uh, one to one ratio. However, and this is, uh, I think, a relatively recent change, is that these gender parity doesn't include those who might not identify within a binary sort of cisgender uh, idea, idea of um, gender. So it's curious because it presents a little bit of a challenge because they want gender parity, which suggests a sort of uh, traditional gender split based on male and female, but at the same time they're starting to recognize, well, gender isn't quite so binary, so they don't actually count representatives who don't identify that way. Uh, but within the people who do, within the set of people who make up the Democratic Party who consider themselves sort of cisgendered, they seek a parity between the genders. But for those who aren't traditional cisgender identifying, those people uh, they don't necessarily seem to have a rule for them. They do have a general sort of LGBTQ plus sort of representation part of the affirmative action program, but they have very little to say, and I imagine this will change as we go on, 
uh, through sort of just history, but there's they kind of mention non-binary genders, but they quickly move on. Well, the the rule basically doesn't impose any requirements on the non-binary gender part. It just says that it doesn't count towards male or female. So. Right. But I, it's so yes, but, but that's where I'm sort of getting at. Where they do very much try to seek a parity between those who actually identify as genders, but they and they acknowledge the existence of non-binary gender, but they don't seem to think that that sort of group merits the same sort of level of parity or, or equal representation, which I think is a little curious. But I, I mean, but so just to quickly recap, so these affirmative action programs they seek to ensure sort of a rough proportionality of historically marginalized groups within the party, as well as, I guess, historically, they just sort of try to get a cross-section of the party as it actually looks like on the ground. But they also go a little bit further, and they adopt a lot of sort of sunshine provisions and education provisions as well. So sunshine provisions are sort of the idea that when we're designing the affirmative action programs at the state levels, one of these sort of overarching rules is that these sort of programs, the attempt to actually set these programs up should be held in public meetings, should be well publicized. The minutes for these meetings should be posted so that people can read about them. The plans themselves should be posted publicly so people can be aware of them and to you know comment and criticize them if they'd uh, like to. Uh, the other thing is this is all coupled with a severe, not a severe, but a hard push for educational programs because the the Democratic Party recognizes that we're, we're not going to have quota systems and we're not going to require exact sort of, if you we, we have to have X amount of people, we have to. It's more like, oh, this is an aspirational goal. Well, the party has recognized that the best way to reach that goal is educational programs. So they require for all of the sort of states, and require here is a sort of soft require because they're guidelines, but they seek to ensure that educational programs are set up and outreach programs are set up in all of these sort of state-level plans. And these outreach programs we'll see a little bit more as we talk about specific states, um, in particular California and New Jersey, but they kind of generally look like sort of um, leaflets, camp, like holding um, hearings and discussion sessions and ensuring that people who are going and giving the talks at these discussion sessions are well-versed in the programs. Um, there's also sort of a sort of general commitment to anti-racially based districting. So the idea is in a lot of Republican controlled, at least the claim is a lot of Republican controlled, controlled uh, districts, uh, electoral districts tend to be racially gerrymandered. So the idea is like you might see that cities where there are traditionally more African Americans than say rural countrysides in the South will have um, the district gets such that like two cities will be connected to each other creating an entirely african-american district and uh, then the rest of the state will be divided up between the predominantly white part of the state and those people tend to also tend to vote republican in certain republican sort of southern states the idea here is though we don't want to do that that's the clearly just wrong-minded so instead we want to district things more on sort of geographical lines ideally so if there's a city in the surrounding suburbs, well, then we're going to districts so that the city and the surrounding suburbs are all within one district and sort of have a fair proportionality of representation. Um, there's also sort of a general, because a lot of these historically marginalized groups also tend to be of a lower economic status or lower economic class, there's a sort of a general blanket idea of 
these programs should a make sure to actually not discriminate against lower income people but b as part of this sort of educational and outreach function we want to ensure that they add ways of access of increasing access for these lower income individuals to make it possible for historically marginalized people who might want to be involved in these sorts of delegate processes to actually have the means to do so. So that might look like grants, that might look like fundraising, and that also just includes basic educational sort of background stuff. Uh, and then finally, one of the other main sort of big ticket items that the ZNC uh, seeks to mandate for its, its state level um, counterparts is that it requires presidential candidates to from seeking this sort of Democratic National com uh, Committee, <laughs> sorry, Democratic candidates seeking the, uh, the Democratic Party's nomination to commit to a similar sort of affirmative action program in their own sort of delegate selection process because the candidates actually select who they want to sort of be their representatives um, within any given state. Um, so those candidates need to commit to similar goals of sort of um, roughly proportional sort of representation. Um, but Victor, would you like to speak a little bit on some of the specifics for California and how it's designed its plan for 2020? Sure. Just out of interest and due to the fact that I live here, I decided to look up what California's affirmative action plan was for the 2020 uh, Democratic National Convention. So to start off, just to give a summary of what the at least the ideals espoused by the Democrats of California is uh, the the ideals of this firm action plan is to make sure that the Democratic Party at all levels is an open party. It should include rather than exclude people from participation in party affairs, and the party should conduct outreach and continually assess the participation of all communities in the process. And also, the plan commits to the state party providing handouts, PowerPoint presentations, and conducting regional hearings open to all communities in California so that basically all Californians have an opportunity to participate within the affairs of the Democratic Party in California. And due to them participating in the California Democratic Party's affairs, they'll essentially participate in the whole country's Democratic Party affairs because the whole idea is that we continue this affirmative action policy up the chain so that the country and the party as a whole is fairly represented. Well, fairly representative. I think yes, fair representation is a different question. <laughs> yes, yes. Fairly represented, um, and uh, no, no minority group is disenfranchised in a way. So the main gist of the plan that has uh, a firm, enforceable language is that the plan prohibits discrimination based on status. Status is essentially defined as race, sex, age, color, creed, national origin, religion, ethnic identity, sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression, economic status, disability. So basically, there can be no discrimination by Democrats in selecting delegates to the National Convention by these uh, criteria. This kind of, just as a quick side note, it's interesting, this roughly maps to a lot of how, again, the Supreme Court sort of what it considers protected classes. Granted, um, although recently sexual orientation has been, been slipped in in a recent Supreme Court case, but things like um, age or disability or economic, economic status, um, and to a certain extent gender identity, um, have not yet made it into the sort of 
exact protected classes protected by the Supreme Court sort of uh, equal protection clause uh, doctrine, but pretty much all the other ones are in this sort of extra protected sort of class. But it's sort of, so it kind of maps to that as one way to think about it. Yes, exactly. And so what the party does is it establishes goals for the participation of these minority groups and other historically disenfranchised groups. So it also includes uh, categories such as youth. So this is a separate part. So the previous part was about discrimination, whereas this part is about specifically doing positive outreach and positive engagement. So specifically, the Democrats of California want to engage a lot of uh, marginalized groups historically. They want to engage participation of minorities. They want to engage youth participation in the party. Um, so these goals are typically met according to the plan through specific outreach and other methods. The rules specifically prevent using quotas and meeting these goals. So essentially the point of these ideas and the point of these rules is to have these people be part of a conversation without explicitly having some token person in a minority, essentially to encourage these community groups to join the conversation and be part of the group as a whole. But the rules specifically as the national rules also state that there cannot be specific quotas in the rules. Yeah. So the rules require the chairman of the California Democrats to establish a committee dedicated to affirmative action, which represents the regionally diverse and representative views of the Democratic constituency group in the state. And basically, this is also submitted to the DNC because the DNC has oversight over this affirmative action plan. So the other thing that is, in my opinion, a little bit short-sighted is that this committee that exists, it only reviews the plan after it's been adopted. So this Affirmative Action Committee, it it is there to review the plan if it's going effectively, but it doesn't actually compose the plan. Maybe for future years, past Affirmative Action Committees can actually also recommend a plan for future conventions so that we can have a more diverse representative view of affirmative action. Lastly, the committee's uh, actual enforcement jurisdiction seems to be tasked with making sure that racial gerrymanders don't occur in delegate districts statewide. So it seems like the committee has some authority to prevent racial gerrymanders in the uh, district selection statewide in California. And the final part is the committee also implements a financial assistance program for DNC delegates. This is probably to make sure that marginalized Minorities, especially since the plan specifically discusses those of economic status, shouldn't be discriminated against. This specifically allows, uh, for example, any delegate who's nominated to attend the convention. Okay, Chris, you want to discuss uh, how things work in New Jersey? Sure. So, as you might imagine, because the DNC is actually setting these sort of the policy guidelines for these, New Jersey's plan is uh, roughly similar almost entirely similar to California's plan. So I'm not going to cover as much as what we've already covered. I'm just going to sort of touch on some of the uh, sort of more, the, the parts of New Jersey's plan that are a little bit different than, say, California's. So one interesting thing is that um, New Jersey especially calls out for, it. it again, it, it says that it's, it's sort of seeking to ensure that um, Ethnic minorities are covered, and it mentions all of the same ethnic minorities as uh, California and as the DNC itself. To be honest, I think these are kind of boilerplate um, things, and they're not really digging down deep enough, which 
to my mind, is a little bit of a cop-out on the part of the DNC and the, the, the state parties, but I understand that there are sort of limitations and it would be difficult to actually go through every sort of racial and ethnic minority that might consider itself worthy of distinct represent or note. But the interesting thing, I think, for New Jersey is that it also in, sort of seeks to ensure that um, caregivers are, are singled out as a historically disenfranchised group. It doesn't define what caregivers are, but I suspect that probably means people like somebody who might be a stay-at-home parent or somebody who cares for um, their elderly or care, or somebody maybe who, you know, actually I struggled actually again because it's not defined. They just say caregivers are included in this sort of historically disenfranchised group, but I'm guessing that it might have to do, it might be tied up in those who are staying at home and doing sort of at-home work that's that is perhaps don't necessarily have the opportunity to go out into the public sphere and have their voices heard otherwise. But I thought that was an interesting thing that the Democratic Party in New Jersey specifically sought to ensure they have greater access as well. Um, one of the other things that I found, I don't know if troubling is the right word, but certainly interesting, is that within New Jersey's plan, it has specific representation goals um, that actually, if you look at their uh, their plan, it gives, so again, New Jersey also prohibits quota, a quota system for its selection process. However, at the same time, it does use six different methods to arrive at a representation goal for the, each of these sort of historically marginalized groups. So, for example, um, one of the ways, so there's a sort of a chart that they set out that actually says, okay, well, it, it says sort of it percents in the Democratic elected within New Jersey, um, and then numeric goal for that delegation. So, for example, African Americans are held to compose about 25% of the Democratic electorate of New Jersey, and the numeric goal for them is 36 delegates. Uh, Hispanics are given a 20% uh share of the electorate and a 28 delegate sort of goal. Native Americans, interestingly enough, are given a 1% sort of percentage. Two delegates, Asian and Pacific Islanders, are 9% and 13% or 13 delegates respectively. The LGBTQ community is pegged at 8% um, and 12 delegates. People with disabilities are at 11%, 15 delegates, and the youth vote, which is, I believe, uh, noted as people between the ages of 18 and 36, is at uh, 30% with 42 delegates as the goal. Now, it's curious to me, that, and I'm not sure, Victor, maybe you could speak to this, whether or not California had a similar uh, numbered sort of system for their goals, but it is curious to me that New Jersey would go out of its way to include a numbered sort of goal system because although they did actually have six different methods, including one that sort of checked for the, um, uh, sort of, it checks all the registered Democrats and then uses a sort of, um, it checks for all the active registered Democrats based on their racial sort of um, self-reporting. Um, another one uses each town's sort of own self-reporting percentages divided by the total number of registered Democrats. There's another which does the sum of each town who voted for in the 2012 electorate divided by the statewide vote total. Um, but there, it, basically, it's just various different ways to get at how many people are in the state and thus how many people should be target, which again sort of seems to me like a backdoor for a quota system, but um, Somehow the party has felt it's not. But that's one of those, 
things that I find particularly, I think, troubling is that despite clear language that says no quotas, they do seem to have a quota system. So it, I don't know, it strikes me as a little cognitively dissident. So I'm curious, uh, at reading it myself, it was a little curious to see. The other thing that I thought was worth mentioning though is that they go into depth about sort of how the education system should look like for this delegate selection and affirmative action process. So one of the things they mention is they want to have well-publicized educational workshops in each of the districts uh, well in advance of the actual selection process. So that's pretty interesting because the idea is that uh, they want to publicize the fact that there's extra availability for financial assistance, that people with disabilities and who are caregivers can actually have access to these things well in advance. Um, they include the sort of sunset provisions that the Democratic National Convention thought was important. They also set up an actual qualified bank of speakers, sort of volunteers from the party who are trained in the affirmative action plan for the state and can actually speak with relative authority on the subject when they're giving these trainings. Because I know, at least in my experience, when I've done outreach, sometimes some of the people doing that maybe don't have the answers that they should have, so the quality of the outreach programs aren't as great as possible. So it's interesting to see that they've really, it does seem like, at least on paper, they do make a... Um, an effective, or at least they're attempting to make serious and effective means of educating their voting uh, population about the tools that they have at their disposal to actually take advantage of this pro of these programs. Um, but yeah, that that's sort of I think what was interesting about the New Jersey um, New Jersey's affirmative action plan in general. Though I'd have to say, I think that the affirmative action program is perhaps a step in the right direction, especially for a party that prides itself on being sort of the champion of the downtrodden and disenfranchised. Having said that, as with most affirmative action programs, I don't think it necessarily captures, it hasn't found the right way to do it yet. At least it doesn't seem like that. And I see, honestly, what seems like a lot more of, um, and Victor, maybe you have a different take on this, but it seems to me like there's a lot of talk, and I don't see a lot of actually enforceable standards. Um, I, I mean, a lot of these things are something that people strive for and don't necessarily have a particularly well established. Like when you create a product, you have very well defined criteria, very well defined blueprints to design it, whereas this is something that we as a society struggle to achieve and so we really have to keep working on it until we find something that works i think that's really what these parties are aiming to do right so the next thing that's on our agenda is to talk about committee allocations at the dnc national convention the same way that each state has to tell the dnc how they allocate their delegates they're also going to have to tell the dnc how they allocate their standing committee slots and the standing committee slots are essentially calculated in a similar way that delegates are calculated for each territory or state. But, there, so there's a state delegate selection plan, there's also a state uh, committee selection plan as well. A good deal of the structure for allocating delegates to committee already exists in the national call for a convention, but there are some mechanisms for states to also influence this selection as well. One of the things that, for example, the national convention does that's pretty important, is it requires a proportionate distribution of these standing committee slots as long as a particular candidate has achieved this required threshold to receive statewide representation, which is 15%. So as long as you achieve 15% of the vote, you're entitled to a proportionate representation of the statewide uh, delegate committee slots. And also, 
there's no requirement under the national rules that a standing committee member be an actual delegate to the convention. So there is a little bit of leeway in terms of who the committee members are and who are the delegates to the national convention. So one of the things that I wanted to, or Chris and I wanted to just briefly mention is that in this 2020 uh, New York primary, there wasn't an attempt by the Board of Elections of New York to cancel the Democratic primary election for the president by removing from ballot all candidates who had suspended their campaigns. This meant that only Joe Biden was left in the ballot. And they, and as a result, they essentially canceled the statewide presidential primary in New York's state. Yeah. It should be worth noting they didn't literally cancel it. It's just that it was a four, if, if there's only one person on the ballot, it's a foregone conclusion, right? I believe they actually canceled it. That was oh, the, did they? They canceled the statewide presidential ballot. Um, Gotcha. For the primary, because there was no candidates. They were it was uncontested on both sides, at least so they claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, uh, one of the previously, even though he dropped out of the race, he was still on the ballot and he could still be voted for. Andrew Yang decided to sue New York State and District Court, and the District Court judge ruled that they had to still have this election. The argument for canceling this election was that because of the coronavirus, they didn't want people to be exposed to coronavirus, which is an arguably a valid point, but the thing that they didn't really address was that there would still be this primary election happen anyway because there were other uh, offices on the ballot. So most of the state, there would still be a primary election regardless of whether or not there was a presidential election. But someone might ask, what could be some ulterior methods for canceling this election? Now, I'm not saying this was the motivation factor. I'm just saying this is something that could have been the motivating factor for this board, but it doesn't seem like there's any evidence to support them. But if a board was, for example, stacked with Democratic appointees who want to move the needle in favor of the presumptive nominee, an alternative, an ulterior motive that they could have for canceling these uh, primary elections statewide was to make it harder for uh, Bernie Sanders' supporters to have a say in the Democratic National Convention. And the way, and why this is, could potentially be true is because of a weird part of the rules that I just mentioned you have to receive at least the statewide minimum for representation to be given a representative share of the standing committee members. So just to drill down on that, just to clarify a little bit, so does that mean, so if if you want to say, so let's say Bernie Sanders did have a lot of supporters in New York, and those supporters, and he wanted to have their voices heard at the National Convention, they would have needed in that primary to get X amount of, the whatever the state minimum is, but that amount at least of voters to turn out in the primary for the delegates that he won to actually count. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they would have needed to get 15% of the vote total in New York. And if they did, Bernie Sanders achieved at least 15% of the total number of primary votes cast for president of New York. What happens in that case is Bernie Sanders' delegates... Uh, have a a minimum number of seats that they're allocated to national committees. So what that would mean is, for example, there would be at least some members from New York who are sent to the national committee. Like, for example, we'll talk about this later, but there's committees on platform, there's committees on rules, there's committees on credentials. There's a number of committees to which, which do important things for the convention as a whole, which would give them representation and give them the ability to participate in. And if these people had not achieved this threshold, then they would not be entitled to this representation on the on the national platform. 
at least from New York State, of course, if they achieve this proportion of representation in other states, then they would, of course, be entitled to standing committee members from those other states. And just keep in mind that even though um, even though they might not have achieved these standing committee representation from some states, they still probably achieved uh, actual pledge delegates from those states. So that means that they could achieve, for example, pledge delegates on the district level. But the way the rules are written for the National Convention is that anything that really is debated on the floor has to come from a committee. And if you don't have enough representation in the committee, you can't force an issue to come before the convention as a whole. Because essentially the rules provide a minimum 25% of a committee threshold before you can actually bring up anything in the form of a minority report to the DNC as a whole. So out of curiosity, Victor, do you know how many people or how much, uh, like what, what, so we heard the district court um, said, okay, you can't just stop the primary, we have to go forward with it. Um, now, do you know whether or not Bernie Sanders actually reached this sort of 15% minimum? And did he get this sort of, like, was there an actual impact on actually doing this? There was an impact. Uh, it looks like Bernie Sanders achieved 18.9% uh, of the votes in New York State. Right. So even though I think Joe Biden ended up walking with roughly, I think, 67.5% of the vote and the line share of the delegates, Bernie Sanders still walked away with, I think, about 53 of those delegates, which meant that he had, you know, like you said, he had pledged delegates on the floor, but it also seems like he probably also got some sort of a step in the, close towards, if not as fully achieving, sort of committee delegates as well, right? Yeah, he's probably with these results, he definitely should have achieved committee delegates. Right. And because he achieved committee delegates, he could his uh, committee delegate representatives to these committees can then start to at least advocate in favor of certain issues that maybe the more progressive wing of the party supports. Right. And because generally I don't think the party wants a minority report brought before the folk, the whole convention, maybe there will at least be an ability for some of their ideas to be included in this uh, nat national platform or similar other issue, similar other reports that are issued by these committees. Right. So it's like when when we see articles that come out or we read some things that say like, oh, just by existing Joe Biden, or sorry, uh, Bernie Sanders drives Joe Biden further to the left. But that really means is that because Joe, I mean, in part of it is just his very existence does in fact and his supporters generally makes Joe Biden, if he wants to capture the whole Democratic Party's electorate and general election, he needs to appeal to some of those voters. But what it also means in a practical and a real sense uh, is that Bernie Sanders' actual delegates have a real voice now in the, in the party and that they can actually sort of leverage that voice to bring about concrete change, at least for the next four years, the party platform. So, like... It's not just a soft power thing, it's a, a real hard power. There could be potentially changes in the rules because of their representation. Yeah, and I mean, they could also even propose changes to the DNC rules. I mean, if they have enough representation, for example, in the Rules Committee, according to the charter of the DNC, for example, the convention can adopt changes with no notice whatsoever to the DNC charter. Um, unlike the DNC National Committee, which is required to provide 30 days notice, something similar when they propose amendments. Technically, the convention can adopt these amendments in accordance with the convention proceedings. So, there is some things that standing committee uh, members can do that, for example, 
just a delegate on the floor can't do because of the fact that there's a huge number of delegates. And so a lot of issues are delegated to committees because it would really be impractical to have them discussed and debated on the full floor of the convention. Additionally, since these issues are delegated to committees, you need to have members on those committees so that you can actually bring up those minority voices and maybe reach a compromise. So now let's actually talk about some specifics of actual uh, committees. So first of all, I want to talk, talk about the Rules and Bylaws Committee. In particular, first I want to talk about its role in essentially asserting authority of the DNC over state delegate selection plans, as well as essentially making sure that all these plans comply with the DNC rules. So the Rules and Bylaws Committees is essentially there to make sure that all state plans are in accordance with national rules. So essentially, the first process of a state committee or state uh, party organization in sending delegates to the national committee is to devise a plan of how they'll do it. So basically, a plan is we were apportioned these amount of delegates. How are we actually going to choose those delegates? You have to specify whether or not you're going to have a primary or a caucus, or or maybe you'll just pick names out of a hat. You have to say what you will do to select these delegates. You have to say how you will select these delegates, and you'll have to say essentially how you plan to have an affirmative action plan in place, how you plan to do all these things the DNC has outlined. Typically, uh, it looks like these state parties, at least from the few state rules that I've surveyed, typically like to point out that certain rules in compliance with the national party requirement. So they will put in their rules, in parentheses after the rule, rule whatever from the DNC National Convention rules. And then those rules are basically there just to kind of reinforce what the DNC National Rules say. Um, so before the Rules Committee, any member of the state where an alleged rule violation occurred can actually file a challenge. Typically, you need to 15 Democrats from the state who are eligible to file a challenge to file this challenge. Typically, this eligibility requirement is very simple, but essentially includes that they're not a recent Democrat. But recent, I think they are required to be like a Democrat for a year because I don't think they want people switching last moment just to cause ruckus in the Democratic Party. So really, but this is a very, I think, very basic requirement, very, very simple requirement. So any 15 Democrats from a state can file this challenge before the Rules Committee, that, for example, a state organization isn't properly following the DNC national rules. Right. So if it was sort of facially complying with the affirmative action program, like it was going through the motions, but it really wasn't actually doing the proper sort of publication of details, or it wasn't doing good educational stuff, would that be grounds for a complaint? Potentially, but actually, what you're saying, if they're doing, if they're following the rules formally, I think that might not even be grounds. But for example... So the first really procedural crime that a state party has to do, in fact, it's considered so important that the burden of showing that a state party did this falls on the state. So the state party has to demonstrate they actually did this. Um, For example, they have to demonstrate that they put out an affirmative action program as well as outreach and inclusion programs by the deadline specified in the national call for a democratic national convention. And basically, if a state party did not do that, uh, someone can just raise that at the rules committee. And unless the state party proves they did do that, then they will get essentially cited by the rules committee and the rules committee will force them to do some certain things. 
So the the state party is guilty until proven innocent in this sort of case? Is that where the burden lies? It seems to be that way, yes. But it's very but it's a very, I think, easy to to prove that you did do something. You're right. I think the failure to submit part of it is very simple. The implement is more is a more difficult issue, which might require some fact fact finding, but it is essentially something that should be easy to prove for the state committee if they actually did their job. Yeah. So it sort of seems like a fair burden sort of allocation. And especially if you think about the idea that affirmative action programs with a root are remedial, because the idea is if it weren't for these plans, then the state parties probably it wouldn't be doing these steps enough. So just as a baseline saying you need to at least submit the plan on time, that doesn't seem too sort of unduly burdensome on the state. This type of challenge has to be brought at least 30 days before the start of this delegate selection process. So there's deadlines way in advance of all these delegate selections that have to be followed by the states. Once they are followed, if you allegedly aren't actually implementing what they said they would, then you actually have to go ahead and file this uh, allegation at least 30 days before they vote all these allegations, just to make sure that everyone has enough time to really address all these issues if they are found to be at issue. Now let's assume that the state has actually done this by implementing and adopting a correct delegate plan that complies with all DNC rules. Basically, if you then see that there is a violation of these delegate plans in a state, you have 21 days after the violation to file a complaint with the rules committee. It's a relatively short statute of limitations. So 21 days filing, sorry, not 21 days of filing with the rules committee, 21 days of filing with a state equivalent of the rules committee. And then once those, 20, once those 21 days pass, you can either then immediately appeal to the DNC rules committee if, you, if you're not in a favorable way, or you can or you can wait until the rules committee or the rules committee equivalent of the state decides something and then appeal. But essentially you have 10 days after, no, essentially 10, after you give notice to a state body that's charged with making sure that the state delegate selection plan is followed. You have 10 days after that you can appeal to the DNC national body. So you need to submit something within 21 days and then essentially 10 days after you submit it you can bring the appeal to the DNC national body, which is the rules committee. When there's an appeal brought before the rules committee and they decide in favor of the appeal, basically the rules committee has ability to enforce that these rules are actually followed. So then they have then after these rules are actually followed or there is remedial action taken, they can certify compliance or they can certify non-compliance and require corrective action. And then after which the corrective action is taken, the the rules and bylaws committee can once again see if there's compliance or non-compliance with these rules. So the rules committee is actually given very wide latitude in actually addressing violation. So they're actually specific rules which have very strict consequences and are essentially immediate. So once you're found to be violating this rule, the consequences are essentially immediately prescribed in the rules. So for example, in the previous episode, we talked about specific timings for holding your elections, holding your caucus election processes. And specifically, if you violate those timing selection rules, you immediately lose 50% of your pledged delegates and your super delegates from the state can't vote at the DNC. And if candidates who are in violation of the campaigning rules for the states, that are in violation of the time rules, are similarly penalized by not being able to receive any pledged or delegate votes from that state. So this is, I guess, actually where the hard... I, when I set up above, I think, so a lot of these sort of affirmative action plan rules and guidelines, it seems like a lot of talk and not so much actual enforcement. 
I think at least in part, maybe that's mediated or mitigated rather by the sort of there are harsh penalties where if it really seems like you gone with the rules and you really haven't made a good faith effort at it, there can be some serious consequences, especially, you know, losing 50% of your potential delegates can have a pretty big impact if if you have, you know, a lot of delegates. Like if California lost 50% of its delegates because it didn't comply with these rules, that would be a pretty huge impact, right? Yeah, exactly. But keep in mind, this is, there's no generally prescribed, like, for action plans except for like the rules specified in the convention call that have to be right. followed like there's no like there's not supposed to be really be a strong uh, value judgment except if it's provided for in the rules by the rules committee at least in theory so the other thing about the rules committee is once they make a decision their decision is supposed to take effect immediately there is no appeal to any other body and essentially the rules specifically state that they're not required to be ratified by like the dnc or any other committee to take right. Effect. So it's not like you can appeal it up to the the whole party itself. The rules committee is the final say. Yes, for these commission specific matters. Um, also, in addition to those previous rules, which require certain penalties to be imposed, and also in other situations not covered by those rules, there are sanctions that can be imposed by the rules committee. And just for consistency's sake, I'm referring. The Rules Committee is the Rules and Bylaws Committee in full, but I'm referring to it as the Rules Committee. Um, so one of the remedial steps they can take is they can, by themselves, form a neutral committee in a state that has the power to come up with a remedial plan to address the state's delegate selection plan. So if it seems like a state party isn't really in compliance, the Rules Committee can just by itself form a committee that's supposed to be neutral and that can actually do this work in state, state uh, party. Additional Sanctions include reduction of the state delegation, committee that actually has actual powers. So basically, the rules committee can also reduce the, that the state has to the standing committees of the DNC. So if the rules committee feels like there's an especially grievous violation, they can also not only just reduce their delegates at the convention, they can also reduce their allocations to the standing committees. They can reduce, basically, now that we're talking about the perks. So a lot of bad politics is like these underhanded perks that are given to different people in power so they, they can trade favors for other things. And the rules committee is also empowered to essentially reduce these perks to kind of also compel people to act in a certain way. So they're allowed to reduce the number of guests. They're allowed to reduce the number of VIP and other passes given to a state party. They're allowed to change the assignment and location of the state's delegates and alternates in the convention hall. And they're allowed to change the assignment of states' housing and other convention-related facilities as a penalty. I have to say, I mean, this is, I think you're entirely right on the money that these are the way, favor trading is kind of how these things work, but it's, it, boy, does it feel silly to have to read these rules and be like, wow, it's enshrined in the rules, that's great. But hey, I guess, I guess, you know, you don't always want to know how the sausage gets made. Yes, and, but, but in, on the other hand, if a party is out of compliance, then comes back into compliance, the rules committee is allowed to kind of accept these remedial actions and show that they started complying with the rules, so now they shouldn't be given these penalties anymore. Also, if, for example, a state passes law saying their primary is held on a certain date, since the party is not an agent of actually the state government, there's really nothing the party can actually really do. 
So in that case, if the party officials can show they made a good faith effort to make sure that state legislation was in compliance, but it ended up not being in compliance, then the party can not can be unpenalized, for example. So if the party proves by clear and convincing evidence that they try their best to make sure that their state was in compliance, but they, for example, let's say the party is not in power, and the state passes a rule saying that their delegates will be chosen on this date following the state primary schedule, then there's nothing they can really do about it technically. Right. So a good example of that might be the New York sort of case we were just talking about. The initial date for the primaries, I think, was set sometime in April. Um, and then by executive order, that was moved to sometime in June. Now, I assume, and that was, again, so executive order is by... The governor and the Board of Elections in New York actually sets the initial primary date, but I suppose in the party delegates of New York, or the party of New York, the Democratic Party of New York, it made, I assume, what was a good faith effort to hold it on the day it was signed or, assigned or initially agreed to, but you can't really stop the governor from arbitrarily changing the date. So that wouldn't be something where they would get penalized because they did make a good faith effort to sort of have their election on the right day, and the governor took that sort of control out of their hands. Well, yes, but also just to kind of add to that, New York-specific case, I think, one, I don't think the state party can make that argument because the chair, I believe, was in support of the governor's actions, the state party chair. Uh, two, I don't think that moving the election date in particular was in violation of the rules, because I think you can you can always have, I think for the most part, the election later, except for some like particularized rules, but in general, it looks like you can have the election later. Really, the only penalties imposed are for having an election earlier, not later, as long as it's like before the convention and you abide by all your delegate selection rules. The, the, the real problem in New York was this cancellation of the primary election, which the official line was that it was done for coronavirus-related reasons, and we don't really have the factual basis to decide one way or the other. So honestly, probably the argument that they were trying to reduce coronavirus infections probably is sincere in some sense, particularly because it is true that the number of people who would have been potentially exposed would have been reduced by canceling the primary for the president in New York because there were some districts in New York which did not have any other election except for this presidential primary, but those were not the majority of districts in New York State. But even reducing some potential for transmission might be an objectively compelling reason to cancel this primary which which doesn't really have a contest in who will be the winner or not but it is worth noting that again even though they did hold the primary with everyone on the ballot 65 or 67 again percent of the vote did go to the presumptive nominee so there is some merit to the idea that if coronavirus i mean the idea that coronavirus was a significant factor in their decision since it was a foregone conclusion who was going to win. Again, I think I agree with you, Victor, that we kind of, uh, on one hand, I want to cynically say, well, given that New York politics has been slowly slipping into more progressive Democrats and the sort of old guard, sort of more moderate Democrats have been kind of fighting that, I think it's not out of the question that they might have, that this might have been a, a different sort of battlefield of that. Uh, sort of general conflict, but I also think, you know, uh, the idea of the state that was a hotspot for coronavirus wanting to take aggressive steps to reduce the risk of that 
isn't, you know, entirely unreasonable either. Exactly. And so just to finish up this section about the Rules Committee's essentially judicial powers or essentially oversight over the delegates in the states, um, if a challenge is brought to the delegates selected more than 56 days before the convention, the Rules Committee can also decide whether or not certain sanctions should be taken or, the, for example, should decide those delegates should essentially not be credentialed. So, for example, if a rule said certain delegates were chosen in violation of their delegate selection plan or the rules, then those delegates, for example, could be not qualified to be delegates at the national convention. So that is something the rules committee can do up to the up to the 57th day before the convention. Now, starting on the 56th day before the convention, and and furthermore, this authority is no longer within the Rules Committee. This authority is actually transferred to a separate committee of the convention called the Credentials Committee. And the Credentials Committee's entire role in the convention process is to essentially establish a final list of all members who are entitled to be delegates before the convention. In fact, they establish the first list of delegates before the convention. So essentially, the first group that can vote before the convention are the list that's prepared by this credential committee. So they prepare essentially this uh, temporary, uh, essentially role. So the temporary Provisional, role. Provisional, perhaps? No, no. It's, I think it's actually oh, referred it, to as temporary it, in the rules. The temporary role is prepared by the credentials committee. And this is the role that's in the committee's report. So basically, this is the role that the committee determines is the appropriate delegates from each of the states. It files it into a report, and the report is presented before the national convention. And this report is voted on by the temporary role. If there's any concerns by the committee, or for example, if uh, there is a challenge brought before the committee, the committee then makes recommendations. So if uh, someone alleges that some delegates were chosen correctly, or there's some problems with the credential of some delegates, uh, or for example, a state was ordered to take some remedial action by the rules and bylaws committees, and they did not take that remedial action, then this can be decided by the credentials committee that because they didn't take this action, we need to disqualify these delegates. Um, there's also a lot of rules about notice and notice to other parties that are involved that is very complicated, but basically the, the central deadline that there is is that basically you have to make you have to make a challenge before the credentials committee within 15 days of a violation occurring. Once again, this 15 members from the state where the violation occurred or concerning the state's delegates where the violation occurred have to submit this challenge or at least be part of this challenge. So the chair of this committee um, can essentially decide the matter if there's no issue of fact. So if there's no factual basis that needs to be litigated, and it's just like an issue of the rules, the chair of the committee is empowered to decide this issue. And also the chair can also dismiss any appeal due to lack of jurisdiction by the credentials committee. So for example, so, before this 56 days are up, this matters are basically supposed to be referred to the rules committee. That's one reason why there could be a lack of jurisdiction. If there's other issues that don't concern the jurisdiction of the credentials committee, once again, this could be dismissed by the chair. Just to be clear, though, Victor, when you say dismiss, or the chair has these authorities, and the chair can dismiss these things. That's the chair unilaterally without consulting the rest of this committee, or is that yes. the chair in consultation? The chair unilaterally. It 
there's no rule on whether or not they have to consult or not consult. That's the chair unilaterally deciding this. However, there is a mechanism by which a petition for review, which is generally allowed to happen for most cases, can be filed to the full credentials committee within five days of the chair's decision. I think there's very limited exceptions, but in general, I would say most issues can be filed brought before the full committee. If you are a member of this challenge slate, or you're a, or you're a committee member from the state where there's a challenge, you can't be involved in the decision. So, which is an obviously obvious ethical rule. So basically, people who stand to gain or lose are asked to recuse themselves, and then basically, the committee prepares a report of essentially all the delegates that have met the credential requirement, and essentially hands it off to the temporary secretary of the DNC, because before the actual secretary of the DNC is elected, you first need to establish the people who can actually vote on the secretary of the convention. And so basically you hand it off these reports to the temporary secretary of the convention, who is um, chosen by a specific mechanism in the convention rules. And then this issue is brought to a vote. This is actually the first item on the agenda. And then the committee, sorry, the committee's report is voted on as a whole by the convention. And we will discuss this in particular a little bit later when we talk about the rules of procedure and rules of order, and as well as the agenda of the convention as a whole. So let's also touch base upon the other function of the Rules Committee. So the other function of the Rules Committee is to prepare a report to the DNC, so which in this case I'm referring to the Democratic National Convention, recommending the permanent rules of the convention. So should the Rules Committee report some other rules that, for example, modify some of these procedures, they can. They can also recommend a particular convention agenda. They can, they are charged with recommending permanent officers of the Democratic National Convention. They can also propose amendments to the Charter of the Democratic Party of the United States. They're essentially also serve as like the Rules Committee of the House. So they can bring up a resolution that leads to consideration of other mat matters not provided for in the permanent rules of the committee and not contain any reports of the other standing committees. So if you want to bring up an issue before the convention that's not really within the jurisdictional oversight of other committees, this is how you would do it. So, Victor, I have to say, these these functions seem sort of to me, at least looking at these functions in, in their totality, it seems like the rules, the rules committee is a pretty important and sort of powerful force within the greater DNC. Is that a fair characterization of the rules committee, you think? I think they have a lot of reserve power. So is that to say that they don't really carry that power out on a regular basis? They can, of course, have a strong power, but it seems like the actual things that are even noticed by people. So most people only really care about what the committee's decision for president and vice president. That's really what affects most people. Right. Some people know about the convention of the Democratic National Party. And in particular, what, what is the other well-known thing that comes out of a party convention is the party platform. And this is heard by this uh, other committee called the Platform Committee, which we'll talk about next. But basically, anything else that's not addressed in one of these committees is something that would have to go through the Rules Committee. So in a sense, the committee has this reserve, in a sense, reserve power to address things that we really haven't come up with or we really don't generally do on a regular basis. So in a sense, that can be a very powerful sort of authority. But if there's no need to exercise this authority, it's possible this committee doesn't even have that much to say except for 
essentially some routine procedural matters, which at the end of the day don't have an actual significant impact. Gotcha. So it theoretically is powerful, but in practice, it just does more routine stuff. Yes, but like, for example, right now with the coronavirus crisis, this is the committee that adopted rules that allows for a virtual convention if need be. Interesting. Finally, let's talk about the platform committee. I already mentioned how platform committees, well, all the other committees are elected, so this platform committee is elected in the same way. Every single committee has 162 members that are from the pledge delegate slots, and then has 25 members from the party leaders and other elected officials slots. Those 25 members are decided by the DNC Democratic National Committee. The 162 members are decided by their individual states or territories. Each state gets a each state committee member gets one full vote, but what do you know? Each individual territory member only gets a quarter of a vote. Sorry, if I recall correctly, in our last episode, we mentioned that some of the territories have greater delegate representation than states. I think Puerto Rico had more delegates. Yes. Than, but they only get a fourth of a vote, is what you're saying? A fourth of a vote in the committees, yes. So effectively, that greater representation numerically is actually watered down to something not so excessive compared to a state. In committee representation. In committees, in particular, yes. But as we also mentioned, committees are where the actual action happens, because if you're on the floor, you can't necessarily bring things up in the same way that you can if you have a certain amount of a committee, right? Yes. So I'll mention that in a little bit, but let's just fully finalize everything. So the platform committee... Sure, sure drafts the platform of the Democratic Party National Convention, so that all these members who are part of the platform committee come up with a draft. The majority can submit a report. If there is a, a strong minority, they can also submit a minority report. This requires at least 25% of the committee to approve this minority report. And 25% of the committee approving this minority report basically allows the committee to distribute everything in the minority report to the convention delegates as well as the majority report, which gets distributed automatically to the convention delegates. Uh, so, And also, minority reports, the only mechanism by which there can actually be amendments made to this majority platform on the floor. So the rules specifically state that you can't have any intervening motions before you go to a vote on the report. So with that, let's actually transition to these procedural rules. So basically, every single territory gets only a quarter of a vote, the one exception is Puerto Rico. It actually gets two uh, representatives to each committee, and each of those representatives gets to like a vote. So the same as everything else. Democrats abroad also only get one quarter of a vote as well, but they get represented to each committee. So basically, that works out to 158.25 votes per committee, representing 162 members. Additionally, there's a there's 25 of these plio members of each committee, which are party leaders and elected officials. There is another part of the platform committee, which is unique to the platform committee and is not present in any other committee. The platform committee has a subcommittee called the, essentially, the committee that writes the platform. So the platform committee as a whole has oversight over what's written, but in terms of like doing the actual writing, this is delegated to a subcommittee of the platform committee. Well, that seems sensible. And this subcommittee members are not appointed from the committee. These subcommittee members are appointed by the Democrat National Committee Chair. 
And huh. it he and the Democratic National Committee chair gets to appoint fifteen of these members, and that's the total committee. And these appointments are supposed to be done in consultation with the chair of the platform committee, but there doesn't seem like there's any advice and consent requirements, so it's just in consultation with. And in addition, which I actually think is also a fun fact, each presidential candidate gets a, can appoint an additional non-voting member to this platform subcommittee, which means, and I'm not sure if this is actually effectively possible, if you should declare yourself as a candidate for the Democratic nomination, Chris, then you would be able yeah. to appoint a non-voting member to this subcommittee that writes the platform. That would be quite interesting, wouldn't it be? <laughs> it would be, but I have a question. Um, are the meetings during these committees, so the subcommittee, do they have a sunshine requirement? So would anyone be allowed to just attend anyway? I don't think so, but it's not clear. Okay. So, that, so I mean, if they have a sunshine provision, then I don't, I mean, that's a, certainly an interesting fun fact, but it's well, also a non member to show up. Who who has basically all rights except for vote, can bring up um, motions. Can, so, that's that's a good point. Can force a vote on a certain issue. Uh, you know what? If I were old enough, I might have to announce my candidacy. Candidacy to... Candidacy uh, whose sole goal is to appoint a non-voting member to a subcommittee of the DNC. Yeah, is there any, is there any requirement or prohibition on the candidate being the uh, non-voting member? Because I don't know, think so. I'll appoint myself. <laughs> You know what? I bet those committees probably get some nice perks, too. Maybe. Maybe some free pens, maybe some nice legal pads. Who knows? I'll have to try. But yes, so, but technically the full platform committee supposedly has oversight over this, so if they don't like a particular way something is expressed, they can potentially um, change that, that expression. So it seems like whatever goes to the actual convention is what the party platform committee as a whole approves so in general it seems like really what this subcommittee would have oversight over or really be able to craft is the original i guess kind of uh phrase or like how originally something's worded and if there's and if a platform is long enough maybe enough of those original kind of ways that something's written will stick so but it doesn't seem clear that something that they decide won't be challenged by the platform committee as a whole if there's enough votes to challenge that. Right, but as a general rule of drafting, you always, if you can have a choice, you want to be the person to put the language down first, and other people can try to amend it, but if you're the person who controls the initial form, that's a pretty huge advantage, because by and large, what's initially there, if it doesn't at least end up winning sort of the day because nobody thinks to challenge it, it sets the tone of the debate, and it structures the sort of I mean, it provides the structure to the debate, so you'd always rather get your language down first and let people try to work with that rather than having to amend the language that's already there. So yeah. That's it. Even if it does get, you know, reworked substantially, it's getting reworked within a frame that you've already established, so it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, you're right, Chris. So, basically, so now that we've discussed these procedures in the committees, Let's just talk about the convention as a whole. So, unless a rule provides otherwise, the convention typically follows Robert's rules, but because the rules that provide otherwise are particularly broad, Robert's rules is really filling in the cracks that are not addressed in the main rules. So a lot of the discussions in the main rules are essentially have already been addressed in a way that is generally different from Robert's rules. But of course, there are certain things that 
are generally parliamentary known, but might not be specifically addressed in the convention rules, which then the convention would refer to Robert's rules. And basically yeah. it gives you a catch-all determination of what will happen so that you know what to do in some unexpected circumstance I require, uh, that might be required to be addressed. Okay, so let's just mention the proportionality crime once again. So basically, because delegates are in proportion in each committee by the state's popular vote, we can then bring minority reports to the floor if there's enough votes against the consensus in the committee to bring a minority report. This is important because the convention's rules state that you can't vote, you can't address any issues before, you can't bring up any amendments or any other motions on the convention floor. So once a report has been read, the chair gets essentially 30 minutes to give the committee's report. Any minority group gets 20 minutes collectively. So if there is more than one minority report, the time is divided evenly between the two minorities. And so, for example, there's multiple candidates which received uh, enough votes and agreed, and it, for example, they agreed on something, but each side wants more, then there could be multiple minority reports. In that case, 20 minutes is divided between all of the minority report uh, leadership, essentially. So essentially, 30 minutes is given by a chair, 20 minutes is given to the minority report, and the minority report can put an amendment to the committee report. That's generally how minority reports work, is they propose amendments in the form of substitutes or in the form of other types of amendments to the uh, committee report. Typically, if it's a particularly adversarial type of minority report, you will propose a amendment in the form of a substitute of the entirety of the majority report, the committee report. Typically, in Robert's rules, you would actually not put this in the minority report. You, this would be a motion in the form of amendment made on the floor of the body where someone could move to substitute the committee's report with the minority report or substitute the committee's report to resolution with the minority report to resolution. But here the minority reports their own potential amendments. And then as soon as this this chair's report is read, then the minority report is read, as soon as that happens, you start voting on the minority's amendments. As soon as you finish voting on the minority's amendments, you put a vote onto the report as a whole immediately after with no opportunity to make any any sort of motion on the floor. At this point, it goes for a full vote of the report once all the amendments have been made and voted on. You vote on the full report. If the report is adopted, you continue on the agenda. If it's not, you'll probably also continue on the agenda, but the, if the report fails, the committee can try again. So it's not like the, the convention's given the power to make their own issue, make their own amendments. The committee gets to basically do a do-over and continue doing it until the report is adopted by the convention. And now let's talk about how the committee, how the convention itself proceeds. So the rules basically allow the rules committee to report a special rule of order, which is this rule that allows you to consider anything you want. But as long as the rules committee does not do this, the order of procedure is as follows. First, you hear the report of the committee on credentials. During this time, until a DNC chairman is elected, the Democratic National Committee chair serves as the Democratic National Convention chair. So the committee on credentials gives a report, and then the temporary role is allowed to vote on whether or not they should adopt the committee of creden on credentials report. So this temporary role establishes you can vote on this on this report. Any representative whose whose delegate status is at issue in this report obviously can't vote. 
on whether or not their status should be adopted. They're allowed to vote on the report as a whole because, once again, on collective issues, you can vote on. But, for example, if there's an amendment in the minority report to change their status, they would not be able to vote on that. Right. So where you're personally interested or you have a personal stake in something, yeah. you're re- asked to refuse yourself. Is there, are you asked to refuse yourself or you're explicitly not allowed to vote? It seems like the rules say you're not allowed to vote, but I'm not sure how that's enforced exactly. Interesting. Probably a, appeal, probably a point of order of the right, chair of some right. sort. But essentially, once they're... They vote on this. Now you can. <laughs> now you can vote on the full report of the committee on credentials. And once this report is adopted, you actually have, as the convention has adopted, the permanent role. So now you have the full role of the convention that's considered the official role of the convention. So basically, once this report is adopted, those are the people who are sending the report as the actual delegates of the convention. They are now become the actual delegates of the convention. So now we've settled. So they move from temporary to actual. Permanent, or yeah, or actual. Permanent. So now they are the delegates of the convention. So credentials have been have been uh, essentially addressed by the convention as a whole. So next is you go on to the report of the rules committee, and the report of the rules committee is basically anything within their jurisdiction they can bring up for a report. The rules also provide for skipping this report and going straight to the election of the chair of the Democratic National Convention. So basically, getting the DNC chair out of there and electing a national convention chair. This is the next item on the agenda, and then afterwards, you can elect some co-chairs. The co-chairs essentially seem to be the vice chairs of the convention, and they have to be elected in a gender-neutral way. So essentially, you have to follow this gender parity rule, or for example, if someone's non-binary, then you have to, then they don't count towards this total gender. So just to be clear, then that's not a gender-neutral way, it's a gender... Focused, yeah, that, or, or I, mean, I mean, what I meant by gender neutral is that you have to follow this Democratic Party's rule of elections, basically, for the co-chair. Right. Of course, the chair is one person, so there's you can't have this rule for, for this. But for the co-chairs of the convention, you have to follow this rule because it's more than one person. And also, because there can be potentially, for example, a non-binary person who's elected to this role, the rules allow for the female-male ratio to be off by at most one person. Next, you go on to the platform report. So basically, the platform committee issues their recommended platform. Once again, you can only have amendments if the minority in the platform committee also issued their own minority report. If there's no minority report, you just vote on whether or not to adopt the platform. You can't make any amendments. You immediately go on to voting whether or not to adopt the party platform. Now, next is the big issue why we're all here. Next is the nomination of the Democratic candidate for president. So this is why everyone's here, is to nominate a president. But actually, this is the nomination for the Democratic nomination. So this is this is essentially the part where you officially put onto the agenda as a potential nominee for the Democratic nomination. So this is this is a particularly interesting point because it has no procedural significance. Because later on, I'll tell you that actually being nominated at the convention for being actually nominated for the Democratic Party line is not a requirement becoming the Democratic nominee for president. But this is actually a very effective political thing to do because, first of all, it gives you prime time on national TV and it is very difficult to get unless you're actually going to win or have a potential to win. 
So you need a, each nomination has to have at least 300 delegate signatures and not more than 600 signatures. So if you have more delegates than that, you have to pick it at most 600 of them to sign the nomination. So each presidential candidate can specify who gets to nominate them and who gets to second them. And the person who makes the nomination, the person who makes the second, they're both allowed to give speeches before the entire convention. And they're limited to 20 minutes from nominating and seconding, seconding speeches per candidate. So if there's multiple nominees, each nominee's nominee seconding speech person gets to speak. And the rules require that basically no disturbances are done during these speeches. So delegates aren't allowed to essentially do a heckler's veto for the nominee. So I, I assume what that means is if some group starts being starts disturbing the proceedings, maybe they can be kicked out by the chair or something of that sort. Just to clarify for everyone who might not be familiar with the heckler's veto, is it's just shouting down or making such noise that the speaker can't actually be heard and is kind of forced into silence. Right? Exactly. And then, once this is all done, this is the part where you actually get to the thing that actually concerns everyone. So before, it was essentially like, we're going to tell you the people that you can vote for president, but this is not an exhaustive list. This is an inclusive list. <laughs> so now, we actually go to voting for the presidential candidate. So once all the nominations are closed, so you start going by roll, which proceeds state by state. So each state would say, like, how many delegates it goes. Goes for this candidate, how many delegates go for this candidate. It seems like in the event that there's only one person who's in the running, and they've secured the majority of the pledge delegates, it seems like everyone can vote for that person. Also, fun fact, the way the rules are stated, it kind of has a little fun twist to it. So the rules are stated that if a candidate receives the majority of the pledge delegates, then the pledge delegates and all the delegates can vote, basically. So right. the idea is that is to show a party unity so that basically everyone votes in favor of presidential candidate. But me, as someone who's trying to look for loopholes in the parliamentary procedure of the convention, what this tells me is that if you have a bare majority of pledge delegates, every delegate can now vote. So that means that's enough to essentially tip the election in the in a favor of another candidate because now that if you allowed every delegate to vote because someone received the majority of the pledge delegates, now everyone can vote. Really? Because that seems to go completely contrary to the most recent adopted rules, which is to stop superdelegates. So I assume everyone can vote to include superdelegates, first of all, yes? If if somebody gets a bare majority, that allows all the pledge delegates to vote, but does that also allow the superdelegates to start voting? Oh, you know what? Sorry, I want to clarify this rule. So let okay. me just read this rule in particular. Well, I think it's worth hearing because it does sound very interesting. On the first ballot of the presidential roll call, only pledge delegates will be permitted to vote unless a presidential candidate has been certified by the DNC secretary to have obtained a number of pledge delegates equal to a majority of all pledge and automatic delegates. Okay, sorry, so I misspoke. So if you have a, if your pledge delegate is a majority that exceeds the majority of pledge plus automatic delegates, then everyone can vote essentially. So I misspoke there. Okay, because I mean that the, the the loophole that you did present is very intriguing. But I think it's somewhat limited by the automatic plus pledged. Yeah. But so now, so but basically, yes. Yeah, so the the what I'm saying is that the idea of this rule is to basically put a united front on once you've all agreed in candidate. But 
I misread it the first time. Now that I've reread it, I was mistaken. But rereading it, basically, if the Democratic nominee is particularly well-known and has won the nomination outright, then everyone can vote for this nominee in order to make it look like there's a united party front. Right. Which, frankly, I don't think... I get the idea of unanimity being a valuable thing, but it just it seems so uh, artificial. I find it distasteful. Maybe. So once you've moved past this first ballot, and if there's more ballots, not only can only pledge delegates vote, basically every delegate can vote. So these automatic delegates can also start voting. Also, most states at that point release their pledge delegates. So most states then at that point allow their pledge delegates to vote for whoever they want to vote. And basically, then you continue taking ballots until you arrive at a nominee. So at this point, the convention continues on with balloting until you arrive at a presidential nominee. So once again, if you're at a deadlock convention, this might be one of those times where the rules committee can exercise their reserve powers by putting up a, some kind of motion to go to some other topic while some backroom deals can be decided. So while you're at a deadlock, you might need to make some backroom deals, some decisions. Maybe you have to give away some cabinet positions in the new administration. And while all these things are being agreed to, you might want to do something else in the convention floor to resolve all these issues. Or, for example, there might be a particularly... Um, this doesn't really happen in modern times because in modern times the procedure has been to give the president the ability to select the vice president. But in the past, people have run for vice presidents. So people have campaigned to be the vice presidential nominee from a party. So in that case, like, for example, Calhoun was the vice president from John Quincy Adams. Right, so John C. Calhoun, right? All right. Yeah. So John Quincy Adams, vice president. So he was running as John Quincy Adams, or seeking the nomination as John Quincy Adams, vice president. So, for example, John C. Calhoun was the vice president during John Quincy Adams' presidency, but he was also the vice president during Andrew Jackson's presidency. So, these two people were campaigning for the presidency, but they essentially had agreed upon a vice president. So, for example, if there's a, a uniformly acceptable vice president, maybe the rules committee will then move the vice presidential selection first. They'll get the vice presidential selection out of the way, have the vice president give their a, a great acceptance speech, and then go back and, and while this is all being done, resolve the differences and select the presidential right. candidate. Just to clarify there, because I maybe I, I didn't hear clearly, so uh, John Quincy Adams was running concurrently against Andrew Jackson, uh, and they had already, so at the same time as they were running against each other still, they had both agreed to John C. Calhoun, no matter what happened, he was going to be the vice president. Yeah, Kathleen was going to be the vice president. Yeah, right. So that, I mean, that is fascinating. I mean, I would, I would be, like, imagine that today. I don't think it really would because I think today when we think about vice presidential candidates, we often think, well, they are necessary to balance the ticket uh, first. So whoever gets the nomination is going to need somebody of a different sort of background. Uh, and that, I mean, it, it would be interesting today to imagine somebody who's such a good fit for vice president who wouldn't also then be probably a pretty strong contender for the presidency itself. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. So now that, but let's say that everything happens according to plan and we've nominated a president. What happens next is the president gets to do his presidential acceptance speech. So this is like a big televised thing, primetime TV. 
the Democratic nominee gets to issue their acceptance speech. This is typically seen as a like trying to bring all Democrats together, trying to find common ground, and try and accept the nomination in a way to kind of boost their standing among the electorate of the United States. That's the current thing about this. So this 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 technically has no actual parliamentary role in the convention. It doesn't do anything at the convention, but this is done for political purposes and it's pretty effective. Next, after the presidential acceptance speech, you go on to nominations for VP. Now here's the catch. In VP nominations, all delegates get to vote regardless if they're automatic or pledged. So in a particular close election, which we didn't have this year, but if we did, it is possible that the president gets a bare majority of the pledged delegates and is nominated, but the other side doesn't like the president very much so. They decide to nominate their own VP. That is entirely permitted by the rules. All delegates can vote on the VP slate, or the VP candidate. And I just imagine that could become increasingly important if, say, a particularly old president was appointed, and it might look like he might not necessarily last through the whole term, or might not be mentally competent for the entire term. That if you mm-hmm. could try to backdoor your vice presidential candidate despite losing on the actual presidential nomination, well, that might be something worth doing. Yeah, exactly. Or, for example, if you can convince that, or if you can also, you can also load the pledge delegates slate to their own people. Like, because a presidential candidate really has only a strong game plan in certain states, they might not have the infrastructure to actually carefully vet all the people that are pledged delegates from their states. So even though the rules require pledged delegate to vote for a particular presidential candidate in the presidential nominating process, there's literally no requirement whatsoever of what the pledged delegate does in the VP vote. So if there's a particularly strong coalition of people supporting a presidential candidate and they don't like the vice presidential candidate, like designee of that candidate, there's nothing stopping them from simply revolting and choosing their own vice president on the floor. So, it's it's interesting how it never happened, but there's literally nothing stopping them from doing this. Well, I think I could imagine at least one reason why it wouldn't happen is because, let's say you are a president, and the party rebels against you and picks a different VP at the last second. I think that um, you might see some serious repercussions in terms of sort of one, if, it, if, if that person if that president does get elected. I could see them having some serious. Um, it would it would immediately kind of sour the relationship between the party and the president, which is also I mean oftentimes already pretty strange just simply by the nature of the presidential office compared to the sort of legislative branch. So I, I imagine that's probably one reason why it doesn't happen. Plus, I mean today, I, I think, yeah, in the future it might become a particularly important role because it's I mean, very possible. The the more. We're, t- we're talking about re- removing the filibuster from the Senate. Mm. With such a divided country, it's quite foreseeable that maybe we'll have a 50-50 Senate split. Then the vice president will get to be the deciding vote in the Senate. The vice president might actually be the deciding vote on who are the nominees by the president for two particular offices. If we still have this Democrat-Republican split, but we then also have a very strong split between progressives and more, I guess, centrist Democrats within the Democratic Party, we might have also splits on who the nominees are to federal offices. And sometimes someone might not approve the nominee to, for example, the Supreme Court if the president is chosen to be a moderate, but the very progressive, for example, activists somehow corral enough votes to nominate a vice presidential candidate. 
they could, for example, say that this vice president, uh, this nominee to the Supreme Court, is not liberal enough. And while the Democrats will vote in favor of basically any presidential nominee for the most part, the Republicans will probably oppose it for whatever reason. And the pre- vice president, who's now acting as a role of this progressive party candidate, maybe doesn't want to approve that anyway as well. I don't think that, I don't really see that happening. It's not a likely scenario. But what I'm saying is that with increasing partisanship, it's possible that a tie-breaking vote in the Senate will be a significant factor. Like, for example, already was with the with pre- president, Vice President Prince. Oh. Pence, no, no. Vice President um, Pence, he actually cast a few votes. He was the first, I believe he was the first Vice President to cast a vote approving a nomination by the President. I believe he cast a vote in favor of a few different nominees of President Donald Trump's, and he he basically cast the deciding vote, which approved the nomination, whereas if he had not cast those votes, the nomination would have been approved. I so, have to say, I find that trend deeply disturbing. Um, I really hope that, I mean, I think, I, I hope that your, your analysis is correct and that this is sort of an unlikely thing to happen in the future, but... Uh, I have to kind of agree. I keep seeing increasing partisanship and, and nomination fights that used to be. I mean, it, uh, the tradition used to be that as long as the candidate was legitimately qualified for the job, they were approved. But increasingly, uh, as we've seen, these sort of nomination processes are getting thoroughly politicized. And I mean, I think that's a negative. And I think that if vice presidential candidates do end up starting to have to cast a lot more tie-breaking votes for nominations. I think that kind of undermines the idea that the nominees are are appointed or are selected by the president, but on the advising council of the Senate. And if an executive branch official is the one doing the tie-breaking vote, it sort of seems like, I don't know, I think it's, 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 it's an ugly uh, sort of state of affairs to be in. Well, also keep in mind that the vice presidential uh, vice president might actually be thinking about running for president in the next term because the president might be term limited. And whereas in the past, the vice president could basically say he had no say in who the nominee was because it's really the president's decision. If the vice president's the one casting the tie-breaking vote, you can very clearly pin the decision on whether or not a nominee became actually the person who got the job on the vice president as well. So in a sense, this also puts the vice president very squarely in the same shoes as the president. And sometimes that's a good thing if the president's popular, but if the president's completely unpopular and the party is trying to cement their grip and power by, by, for example, appointing judges to the federal bench, then it might be essentially a bad thing for the vice president because they'll have to either live by the sword or die by the sword in this case. That's a good point. So, Chris, you wanted also to actually discuss this. Speaking of partisanship, you wanted to discuss this majority vote rule that we all seem to think existed the whole time. But in actuality, we we both know as someone who knows some background of this, is that having this uh, majority vote for nomination wasn't always a thing. Could you tell us more about it? Right. So, well, in particular, I wanted to address the sort of the McGovern Commission. So, so back in actually during FDR's reign, to, to address your point quickly, so for a long time... Um, there's a two-thirds majority, so a supermajority rule for the nomination process. And this actually, for many years, uh, there was a campaign uh, starting in sort of like the 1800s, but really sort of rumbling along until um, FDR's time to move this two-thirds vote back down, 
back to a majority vote, which incidentally the Republican Party has always had. The Republican Party's nomination process has always been by majority. Uh, granted, the Republican Party is far younger than the Democratic Party, but um, during so there was this sort of increasing sort of grassroots sort of effort to say, all right, let's move away from this two-thirds uh, method. It tends to end up um, sort of creating broker conventions and all these vacuum deals that we don't think are representative of the people's will. Let's get rid of it. It this kept coming up every convention, every convention, but for re, for a variety of reasons, mainly I think vested interests not wanting to change, um, it never really happened. However, when FDR came to power, he was so universally beloved that when he and his sort of cohort suggested it, it got passed. So that's actually, um, I believe it was like the 1930s that the majority changed. The, the two-thirds rule changed to majority. But the other interesting thing that sort of and this that happened somewhat more recently in the 1960s is the McGovern Commission. So this, I think, is really interesting because during the 60s, especially the tail end of the 60s, they were kind of facing a similar era of hyper-partisanship, I guess, or hyper-dissatisfaction between the popular wing of the party and the actual elite members of the party membership. So to sort of situate us here, the McGovern Commission was this sort of commission that took place in the wake of the 1968 party convention um, and that party convention that took place in Chicago and during sort of the right during the middle of Vietnam War when things are really starting to heat up and there was such a bad tension between the democratic political operatives and the people and then some of also the, the democratic rank and file but not the sort of elite members of the party that there were legitimate riots that occurred outside the convention center during the sort of convention. So, just to give some background, um, in 1968, this, uh, a guy named Herbert Humphrey was selected as the Democratic Party's nominee for president, despite not winning a single primary. So, like Victor was saying, you can get nominated on the floor of the convention without actually sort of having run for any of these primaries. This actually happened. Um, it's not just sort of conjecture. This is a real thing that happened. And the reason that it happened was because, so... In the run-up to this sort of election, it was a very sort of chaotic primary process. To start, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, um, he was still the sitting president at the time because JFK had been assassinated, and LBJ sort of took over. However, LBJ, uh, for reasons that were sort of outside of his control, had to sort of prosecute and expand the Vietnam War. And as a result, he, uh, he initially sort of faced an early challenge from several anti-Vietnam candidates, and during an early primary, he won a pri he won his primary, but it came out very it was a lot closer than he expected, and so he sort of took that as a signal that well the the, the real party they don't want a pro war candidate, and I believe that I sort of have to fight the war. So if the people don't want me, I'm not going to run. It's not worth it for me. So he stepped out of the race. So that kind of left a giant void because normally the president is the presumptive front runner. So we removed the sitting president, and now we have. A wide open race. So into that sort of void, there was the sort of candidate who was already sort of, there were several anti-Vietnam candidates that entered. Most notably, I think, for many people, was Robert Kennedy. So JFK's younger brother, Robert Kennedy, he had been active in the JFK administration. He had been active in politics for many years before that. In fact, I believe he got his start, uh, interesting fun fact, as a member, as a staffer uh, for the House Committee on sort of Un-American Activities, or maybe it was the Senate, but it was essentially UVAC, the sort of 
uh, committee that did a lot of investigations into supposed communist sympathizers. So that's where he got to start, but eventually he worked his way up to the attorney general um, under his you know, uh, older brother, JFK. So he runs as another prominent anti-Vietnam candidate, sort of following in the footsteps of JFK. He gets assassinated, though, quite famously. Um, so that kind of, again, the up next frontrunner. So we had LBJ. He was the frontrunner. He steps out. And then everyone's like, all right, Robert Kennedy's going to be our guy. He steps out. Uh, well, dies, but, you know. And then you get a few other people, including one of the senators from South Dakota, Senator McGovern, who was another anti-Vietnam War uh, candidate. So we see the actual candidates that are getting votes in the primaries and looking successful are almost universally anti-war candidates. However, the actual party leadership are all pro-war. So when it comes to the convention, the party leadership gets together and says, well, we're, we're not about this anti-war nonsense. We need to fight the war. We need to stop the communists. So they nominate Herbert Humphrey, who's more of a pro-war sort of candidate. And this is outrageous. The rank and file is outraged. The popular party is outraged. So it leads to a committee report, sort of call it, so it leads to a committee report called the McGovern Fraser Commission. Uh, it's a commission, but it issues a report, and that's sort of what it's known for. And what is interesting about this report is that a lot of the things that we talk about today when we come to talk about reforms to the Democratic Party, so opening up access to the party, um, making sure that every member of the party is actually represented, and sort of removing and reforming the nomination process so it actually represents the party will and not the leadership will. So all of that they were talking about all the way back in the 60s. So the sort of basic findings of the committee's report was while they definitely needed to reform the primary process because at the time a lot of the primary process could be manipulated by party leadership pretty easily, they didn't want to set a uniform standard. So as we see today when we look at our affirmative action programs or we look at delegate selection programs, there aren't hard and fast rules. They set recommendations at the national level and then the states sort of carry those recommendations out how they wish. So that's the thing that was still an idea during this McGovern Commission. And instead of sort of a uniform uh, process, they set sort of guidelines. And the interesting thing when you read these guidelines are, again, they're things that we hear about and we keep talking about even down to today. So there were like three key findings. The first one was that the rules of the practices which inhibit access to the delegate selection process, so things that sort of compromise full and meaningful participation by uh, the democratic sort of popular front, we want to get rid of those things. We want to ensure that access is more easily available to the people. The next major recommendation was that the rules and the practices that currently exist which dilute influence of the average member of the Democratic Party in the selection process, we want to get rid of those. And the third and final sort of key recommendation were the rules and practices which have the combined effect of either inhibiting access or diluting influence. So on one hand, things that make it harder or things that even once you've sort of gotten over the hurdle of getting into the process, make your vote less important. We want to get rid of both of those. So what I find so interesting and so compelling about the McGovern Commission, the more you learn about it, is it's sort of a, it looks like the things that we talked about, you know, generations ago, they're still the things that we're talking about today. We still see that the push for a lot of the progressive wing of the party is we want to increase the ability for all members of the electorate to have access to elections. We want to make sure that those voices are actually heard. We want that one person, one vote standard. We want to make sure that everyone is getting that opportunity to vote. 
it just seems so curious to me. It's so sort of, you know, the, the standard, the, the, the tired phrase is that, you know, history repeats itself, and we see, again, like, we're, we're seeing that process play out. We see uh, massive popular dissatisfaction with the way the leadership handles things, and we see, uh, you know, th think of the Clinton sort of Bernie Sanders divide in our most recent sort of primary. The party leadership, I think it's fair to say, very much wanted Clinton, and it seemed like a lot of the popular support, at least sort of gra grassroots efforts, wanted Bernie Sanders. And yet, we know that there are plenty of efforts by the leadership to sort of connive to make sure that Hillary had an easier path. Uh, so it's, again, this sort of, we're restricting access, we're making influence diluted, we're doing all of these things that we know aren't good, and yet we've seen the same thing, you know, a couple generations ago. It's just, it seems to me just so in interesting in that sense. I don't know, if you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I've grown older, I've kind of went away from the phrase that history repeats itself, but I think my current understanding of the idea is that it doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes. So mm. what we see here is similar to the issue that we've seen in the past. We didn't get to the point where there was a candidate nominated who didn't even run in any primary. But we are still at the point where there's questions about legitimacy, there's questions about undue party influence. But the fact that I think that's a question overall, and the fact that it was seen as unfair by the party to help a particular candidate versus another candidate, I think it still means that we're moving in the right direction. I think in the past that would have been that big of an issue for the party helping a candidate, because in the past, really, one of, first of all, we didn't really have this electronic system of communication that this really had been uncovered in such a fast manner. And two, there wasn't anything wrong with the leadership remaining partisan in their selection of a particular candidate back then. I think now it is seen as doing something wrong where the leadership is choosing a particular candidate for president, leadership of the party, I mean. And I think it's now the leadership has made this goal of appearing uh, to not pick a horse in the primary fight. I think that's we're definitely moving in the right direction. And especially like this rule of only pledge delegates voting on the first ballot, I think once again that kind of follows what this asks to do, but at the same time it leaves certain reserve powers to these uh, automatic delegates, which in some sense of the word does dilute the power of uh, the common Democratic Party member. Well, I guess I'd have to say, although I do find it compelling, and I certainly think it's interesting, and I, I definitely agree with your sort of the history rhymes comment, I'm actually less convinced. I understand that sort of literally in the root of the word Democratic Party is the idea of the sort of the demos, the people having control of the actions, but I'm not so convinced that that's in the best interest of, of, of the party long term. I think that there is a certain virtue to having a certain dilution of impact or of influence by the lay members and i'll say that for this reason while it is certainly true that the elite members of the party can be out of touch with the everyday members ideas and feelings those elite members are also the people who live day in and day out and breathe the political process and who are the best place to sort of understand what it takes to both win an election because they have to do it to get where they are and two to actually lead the country so i think that I think that, in truth, there needs to be more of a sweet... I don't know if there needs to be more of a sweet spot, is the right word, but there is a sweet spot that we need to hit. And I think that complete open access for everyone and a complete equal influence might not actually be that sweet spot. I just want to piggyback on something you said. I, you mentioned two points. 
One is to win an election, and two is to lead the country. I completely agree with your part on leading the country. Definitely the people who are in these leadership roles, I think, do understand what it takes to lead the country. But I kind of disagree with you on to win the election. And my main example, then recent memory that we all know of, is President Donald Trump. I don't think most people in leadership would have thought that he could win an election because his election strategy was basically seen as something you shouldn't do. But in the, in the same sense that it was seen as something you shouldn't do, it was very effective. And his strategy seemed to be the only, only thing about what matters, which in this day and age, regretfully, is not the popular vote. It's the electoral college vote. And I think, I think his strategy, at least his campaign strategy, was effective in polarizing the electorate so much that he completely lost a popular vote, but he did win the Electoral College because the the kind of wedge issues that he concentrated on were wedge, were wedge issues that motivated these swing states to vote in favor of him. And I think that is a strategy that the leadership wouldn't have really come up with. also think that when both candidates are operating within the realm of conventional political wisdom, yes, they can give you a good example of who can win. But if there's a particular candidate who's maybe operating outside the realms of conventional wisdom, more likely than not, the candidate will lose because usually the conventional wisdom is right. But it is possible to get to like a new equilibrium or to do something completely unexpected that might let you win at the end of the day. I mean, similar things have happened in the past where a particular presidential candidate based their campaign on things that the public did not expect or the public realized it wanted. I mean, another example that I can give in the past was this. Um, I, I'm not sure this was a campaign, but this was definitely a popular issue, was this idea of civil service reform, where instead of civil service being a patronage type position within the federal government, it became a it became essentially a civil service job where you're chosen by your merit, not by your politics, which is, in a sense, has been a popular reform of the federal government. So popular that we we just expect it to be naturally a thing. We don't expect. Well, do we these to... days? I mean, if, speaking of Trump and changing dynamics, I think uh, the way that he has appointed certain people might kind of call into but question. But that's appointments. We're not talking about appointments. We're talking oh, about. Do you mean the actual. Like, Within the civil service itself like, and not like, the heads of the Yeah, not the officers that are appointed by gotcha. the president. We're talking about like their staff members or people who really just do the nitty gritty stuff and not do like the major policy stuff. Or people, for example, who follow the rules but uh, essentially can execute them effectively instead of just being appointed there because of their political because of political patronage. Yeah. I think that's fair. Well, if, if uh, on that note, Victor, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Parliamentary Procedure about the Democratic National Convention. Stay tuned, and this feed will also publish a few Q&A questions that were asked about the convention and the Democratic Party convention as a whole. Uh, we will answer them in that podcast. We'll try to make it a very short episode so you can listen to it after this episode. Thank you, and have a good day.